In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. As I said, we're looking at this passage every Sunday during Advent, and we're pulling out different themes. So we already talked about life and light, and today we're looking at glory, another major theme in the Gospel of John. Um, I'm mostly going to focus on verse 14, but we're going to go back to Exodus and then go forward in the Gospel of John to make sure we understand verse 14 well. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you just how stunning the statement of verse 14 is. Secondly, I'd like to show you the dramatic development of some of these ideas in the rest of the Gospel of John. And then finally, I'd like to, for us to see some incredible implications of verse 14 for our lives. So we'll look at verse 14 and look back a little bit to understand it from Exodus And then we'll look forward in John's gospel to see how it's developed and then finally apply it to our lives. So that's my plan. So let's look at the stunning statement of verse 14. It reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt, literally means pitched his tent or tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John, as he's writing this, as you know, he's using these profound concepts that he's drawing from the Old Testament. And so for us to see just how stunning this statement is, we we need to revisit Exodus 33 and 34. So if you want to open your Bibles to Exodus 33 and 34, I'm going to highlight some verses, but I think it would be helpful for you to see the text uh, before you. So first, as you look at Exodus 33, and specifically verse 9, you will find the description of the tent 
of meeting. Now, what is it? Well, let me read verse 9, 33 9 to you. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So the tent of meeting was, was a literal tent. It was a place of God's presence with his people. It was a place designated by God for communication with Moses as a representative of Israel. In verse 11, it says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, Moses experienced personal conversations with God himself. God spoke with him from this pillar of cloud, of light, of this, this veiled presence of God. And by the way, in this case, the tent is actually outside of the camp of Israelites. So it's not inside the camp. It's not in the middle yet. It will get there. But it's outside of the camp, telling us that there's tension between God's presence and God's people. The tension of the narrative is is rooted in the possibility that maybe God would remove his presence. Now, what happened? Now, if you remember in Exodus Uh, Moses went up to the mountain to receive the revelation from God, and people made a golden calf, and when Moses came back, this is when this is happening. Moses is actually pleading with God in the tent of meeting, where he speaks with God face to face, in the cloud, in the veiled presence of God. Moses is pleading with God not to remove his presence from his people. Now God says, you can still go into the land of promise, and he says, I will send somebody, presumably an angel, to guide you. But God says, I won't go with you. You're too sinful for me to be around. And Moses goes into the tent of meeting, and he's speaking to God, and he's pleading with God not to remove his presence, his glory from Israel. And God graciously grants Moses' request. And as proof of God's ongoing presence with his people, God commands Moses to build a tabernacle which is a larger, more elaborate tent of meeting, which will now be in the middle of the camp. Chapters 35 through 40, which is the remainder of the book of Exodus after this, just give us lots of instructions on how they built it. And then finally, when the tabernacle is set up in the middle of the camp, the glory of God descends in a cloud representing God's presence with his people. Now, this is the background. It's really important to see what's happening here as it relates to glory. God meets with his people in the tent and then later in the tabernacle in the middle of the camp, and he speaks to Moses from a cloud. Now, back to Exodus 33. After this question of God's presence is settled... Moses makes another request, much more audacious as before. In verse 18 of chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses prays, Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Now, he's already experienced God's presence in the cloud. 
So what is he asking for? He's already interacted with God. Scripture says as, as if they were talking face to face. But remember, it's happening in the cloud, in a tent. There's, there are limitations. God's presence is veiled. What he's asking for is a greater experience of God. Now, in the Bible, and this is really helpful to know, in the Bible, God's glory is simply God's expression of who he is. So we say that God is holy. That is the same as saying God is God. This is who he is. But God expresses that holiness. He expresses himself through his glory. So when we say it's God's glory, we mean God has expressed himself. He's revealed himself. We know what he is like. God's glory is who God is, what he is like. So to see God's glory is to know God as he is in his character in his attributes. So what Moses is asking here, he's asking for God to remove the cloud, to remove the veil, and let him see God as he is. I mean, this is an incredible request. Moses says, I, I've spoken with you as if we were face to face, but it was in the cloud in a tent. Now, show me your glory. Let me see you as you really are. Let me know you as you really are. This is how God responds, verses 19 and following. God says, I will make all my goodness, his character, who he is, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, the covenant name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, says the Lord, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God responds to Moses' requests, and he says, I will show you as much of myself as you can handle. You won't be able to see my face, which is what Moses wants, the face that's veiled by the cloud. He says, you won't be able to see my face because you cannot see me and live, but you will see a little bit of me as I'm passing by, and you will hear my name proclaimed. As great as Moses was, as intimate a relationship as he had with God, Moses was a sinner. And God says, that you can't see me as I am. You can't come close to my holiness without some sort of barrier. So I will tell you who I am. I will describe myself to you with words. And I will let you see a glimpse of me as I pass by. Now, this promise is, in fact, fulfilled on Mount Sinai when Moses goes back to the mountain in chapter 34, verses 5 through 8. But please notice that as the Lord proclaims his covenant name, Yahweh, to Moses, this is his glory revealed through words, his character, his attributes revealed through words verbally to Moses. He also commands Moses to cut two stone tablets and writes the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words on them. 
again, to reveal His character to His covenant people. So when Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, his face is shining because he had been talking with God. Now I want you to make sure we, we, we grasp these ideas. This is the background of verse 14 in John 1. This is undoubtedly what John is thinking about, what any reader of the Old Testament would be thinking about as they come to the Gospel of John. And the ideas are the tabernacle, the tent in which God meets with Moses. The glory revealed in a cloud, veiled. The glory revealed verbally. God's character, God's attributes are described. The name of God is proclaimed. And yet the person is shielded from God's holiness. You have these ideas that are in the background. And now if you keep that in mind, and if you pretend you were a first century Jew who knew the Old Testament, who was steeped in the story of Moses, and now you come to, to chapter 1 of John and verse 14, and you read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, pitched His tent among us, and we have seen His glory. I mean, th this must have been stunning to any first century Jew who read it in context. It should be stunning to us. Israel's aspirations to know God, to experience God as He is, to see His face, to have the Lord present among them, to see God's glory, all of that, according to John, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a stunning statement that all that stuff from the Old Testament, all of Moses' prayers to see God's glory, all that God has set up in the tent through His glory, through the temple, through the verbal revelation of His character on the tablets and in His name, all of that is now fulfilled in the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And now we can say we have seen His glory. As D.A. Carson, one of the commentators, puts it, the Word God's very self-expression, who was both with God and was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin. God chose to make Himself known, finally and ultimately, in a real historical man. This is incredible if you understand it in the context of the biblical revelation. But this is not as amazing as it's going to get if we keep reading John's gospel. So again, put yourself in the mindset of a first century Jew who gets the manuscript of, God, of the gospel of John, gets to the, point, to the verse 14 in chapter 1, and is already very excited that God is fulfilling all the aspirations of Israel, and the story of Moses is, is being fulfilled here. But then that person keeps reading the gospel. And this is what you find in the rest of the gospel. There is a dramatic development of the idea of God's glory coming into the world through the person of Jesus. So look with me at John 7, verse 37 and following. John 7. 
So this is how John is developing this idea of God's glory. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this is puzzling, because we read in, in John 1.14 that that God is glorified in Jesus, that we have seen His glory. John said, we have seen His glory in the incarnation, in the life of Christ. And yet, Jesus here says, the Spirit will come, and the Spirit will be in every believer, and new life will come from their very hearts because of the Spirit's presence in their lives. But, Jesus says, this is not going to happen until I am glorified. So what is going on here? On the one hand, John is saying, We have seen his glory. On the other hand, Jesus is waiting for something to happen until he is fully glorified. He's promising the Spirit, but this is not going to happen until the event that Jesus refers to as the hour, until the hour has come. Now go with me to John 12, verse 16. Jesus is greeted as a king, As he enters Jerusalem, this is the triumphant entry into the city. However, John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples were able to understand Jesus' kingship, his authority, his rule, part of who he is, that's his character, that's his glory. But they were only able to understand that in light of Jesus' glorification later. In the moment, they're not sure what's happening. But later, once Jesus is glorified, they get it. They understand that he is the king of kings. Now finally, John 17. I'm giving you glimpses to, to, to help us understand what verse 14 really means. John 17, this is Jesus' famous prayer before he is betrayed, tried, convicted, and put to death on the cross. Jesus prays in verse 1 of John, John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Right before Jesus is arrested, tried, put to death. Right before this is happening, he's praying. And he's praying, Father, the hour has come. We're we're close. We're close to this great event when I will be glorified. And he's praying for God to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. Do you see what Jesus is expecting? Jesus is expecting that during his crucifixion and the later resurrection, he will be glorified, and the Father will be glorified through his work. So yes, in the incarnation, we see the glory of God. His character and attributes are revealed in the person of Christ. But it's not until later. 
It's not until the cross and the resurrection that we can say, finally, God has been glorified. That finally, God has been revealed to us as He is, and we can know Him. Now, follow the logic. God did not think it's sufficient to reveal Himself in the manger only. He thought it necessary to reveal Himself on the cross and in the empty tomb. If glory is the expression of who God is, if it is the revelation of His character, if glory is the manifestation of His presence, God considered the cross and the empty tomb to be the greatest showing of His glory. To know God as He is, we must see Christ on the cross dying for sinners and coming out of the tomb with a gift of life for all who believe. See, now we can really understand John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Word became flesh. This is a Christmas phrase. I mean, we say that, right? We sing songs about God becoming flesh. And most of us only think about God becoming human, coming into our world. And that is right. But there is a deeper meaning here. For God to become flesh, human, yes, but flesh, notice the language, means for God to become vulnerable. God becoming flesh means God becoming vulnerable. God becomes rejectable. God opens himself to real pain. God becomes killable. This is what's happening in verse 14, which is why verse 14 is not fully understood. It's not fully, the meaning is not fully extended until we see the cross and the empty tomb. You have to put it together. You have to see this idea developed through the gospel. God becoming vulnerable. God becoming rejectable. God opening himself to real pain. God becoming killable. This is not like what happened in the Old Testament with Moses. When God wrote his words on the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, the first time, remember it happened twice, the first time God did it, Moses went down from the mountain, he brings the, the two tablets down, he sees people worshiping the golden calf, and in his anger, Moses throws them down and breaks the tablets the tablets were broken. God's words on the tablets were broken. But God was not broken. God simply gave Moses another copy of the Ten Commandments later. His words were not silenced. However, on the cross, God was broken. The Word of God was silenced by death. God's anger against sin crushed his son on the cross. When God met with Moses in the tabernacle, in the, in the tent of meeting, and then later when God met with others in the temple, God could come and go. In fact, later in Israel's history, the glory of the Lord left the temple. 
You may remember that the nation of Israel was so unfaithful that God said, I'm going to remove my presence from the temple. And the cloud of the glory of God actually left. And the presence of God was removed, and the nation of Israel was taken into exile as punishment for their sins. And the temple was destroyed. Now, the temple was destroyed by God. God wasn't destroyed. God left. The presence was gone. But when people were asking for a sign of, from Jesus, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, in John 2.19. Now, of course, Jesus was not talking about the temple building in Jerusalem. He was talking about the temple of his body. This time, when the temple was going to be destroyed, God would be destroyed. God's presence was withdrawn from Jesus on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that God has always been one? But God, for the first time, experienced being alone on the cross. Alone. Moses longed to see God's face. He wanted to experience his presence in all his majesty. He wanted to see God's beauty unveiled by the cloud. Moses' face was shining because of the brilliance of God's glory. However veiled and obscured, his face was, was still shining because of the brilliance of God's glory. And yet, when Jesus died, he died in the most shameful way. Isaiah described it in this way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It pleased God to show his glory in the shame of the crucifixion. Do you see how different it is from what was happening in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the Old Testament? God could come and go from the temple, but Jesus became the temple. God could speak his words, and if the words were destroyed, he could speak more words. But Jesus became the word of God. The presence, the glory of God that could come and go now was stationed in the person of Jesus. And Jesus became vulnerable for us. This is breathtaking. If we really get it, this is absolutely breathtaking. That God would do that, that God would become vulnerable, that God would become killable, that God would become rejectable. Why? Because all relationships demand vulnerability. If I decide to protect myself from ever getting hurt, my relationship with you is not real. You see, for me to really be in a relationship with someone, 
I need to open myself up to the possibility, at least to the possibility of getting hurt. To love is to open yourself to the possibility of pain. For God to love us meant to become like us, to become breakable, to become vulnerable, for the Word to become flesh. This is the expression of His glory. Because God is love, God has eternally existed in the loving relationships within the Trinity. And so for God to reveal Himself to us, remember, glory is the expression of who He is. For God to reveal Himself to us, He has to show Himself as He really is, and He is love. So for Him to show Himself as He really is, He has to enter into a relationship with us, and for that to happen, He has to become vulnerable. This is His essence. This is His nature. For God to show us His glory, He had to love us. And to love us, He had to become like us. To die for our sins and to rise again, this is a necessity for Him. To love us, He had to become vulnerable. Friends, this is God. This is who He is. This is His glory. And this is the gospel, and it is utterly breathtaking that God would do that, that God did that for us. Now let's look quickly at the incredible implications for us. I'll give you three. There are plenty more. I'll give you three implications of God's glory being revealed in Jesus. Number one, we must grasp the truth about God's glory. We must grasp the truth about God's glory. This is what we're doing this morning and every Sunday morning. We are grounding our understanding of God in the Word who became flesh, died and rose for us, ascended into heaven and is coming again. We proclaim with great confidence, unapologetically, that we can know God. We can know Him. We can know Him because He has revealed Himself to us through the Gospel. And as we gather and recite the Gospel, which is what we're doing in preaching and in praying and in singing, we're simply reminding ourselves who God is. We are experiencing His glory through our minds by understanding the Gospel. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that the God of this world, our enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So to be a believer is to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do you see how the themes are coming together? To be a believer is to understand the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so by God's grace, we must grasp the truth of the gospel and regularly remind ourselves of who God is as He has revealed Himself to us in Christ. Because in the absence of the gospel, God's revelation of Himself to us, God's expression of Himself, we simply make up our own ideas about God. It's very important to know what God says. 
It's very important to understand what the gospel is, what it means for the word to become flesh and reveal his glory to us. It's really important to understand it with our minds. Because if we don't, we fall back on all sorts of weird ideas of who God is and what he's like. I'll give you a silly illustration, okay? I've been very serious this morning. I'm going to give you a silly illustration. Most of you have seen The Office, the TV show, The Office. Michael Scott is the manager of The Office, and he often interprets what's happening through his own unique way of understanding reality. And so in this particular case, he has determined that there is a curse on The Office because a couple of things have gone badly. And so he thinks there's a curse on The Office. And in an attempt to remove this imaginary curse from The Office, he suggests the following. He says, maybe there's some sort of animal that we can make a sacrifice to. And he thinks, he ponders, he says, like a giant buffalo or some sort of monster, like something with the body of a walrus with the head of a sea lion or something with the body of an egret with the head of a meerkat or just the head of a monkey with the antlers of a reindeer with the body of a porcupine. Now, what is he doing? He's creating a God. right? He's creating a God. He's saying, this kind of God makes sense to me. Out of his imagination, he's pulling out these ideas. And he can't get any higher than an animal. But that's his mind. This is where those ideas come from. He doesn't have the revelation. He doesn't have the gospel to fall back on and say, this is who God is. The word made flesh, revealing God's glory to us. Now, most of us probably don't go to composite animals when we think about God, but we come up with all sorts of strange ideas of who God is. And if you don't have the gospel, if you don't grasp it, if you don't understand it with your mind, if you're not able to explain what happened in the incarnation, what happened on the cross, what happened in the empty tomb, you will inevitably go astray in your understanding of God. So we need to learn and relearn and remember and study and memorize and understand the words of the revelation of God in Christ. We need to hear God proclaim His covenant name and attributes to us in the gospel of Jesus. That's the first implication. The second one is, that we must pursue the experience of God's glory. Now, first, we grasp it with our minds, but secondly, we experience it. We experience God's glory. John 1.14 tells us that God dwelt among us in the incarnation of Jesus. God lived with us through Christ. God moved into our house. God lived among us grasp the idea that God came that close to us. It's as if you're, you're hosting somebody at your home and somebody lives with you and they stay at the, in the guest bedroom or in the living room and they eat meals with you. This is how close God comes to us in the incarnation. Now, it's one thing to know that God lives in your house. It's quite another to know Him, to spend time with Him, to have a relationship with Him. Wouldn't it be strange if 
you had a house guest and you avoided them at all co- And some of you are thinking, that happened to me, actually. <laughs> Week three of, of the guests staying with us, this is what we did. But how strange is it to have somebody stay at your house and avoid them, avoid talking to them, avoid sitting down with them, avoid eating meals with them, and yet many Christians do just that with God. If the greatest degree of glory is the revelation of God's love for us through Christ, should we not respond by loving Him? Love is what should drive us to pursue a real relationship with God, not guilt, not the hope of reward, but love. We love because He first loved us. It is really important that your experience of God's glory is not limited to your intellect. You must know firsthand what God is like because He has reached out to you in love and welcomed you into a relationship with Himself by grace. Are you pursuing pursuing a real experience of God? I think all Christians should follow Moses in frequently praying, God, please show us your glory. Show me yourself. I am coming to you because I want to know you. I want to know what you really are. I want to see your face. I want to feel your presence. I want to love you as you have loved me. Are you doing that? And finally, number three, we must live for God's glory. We must grasp the truth of the gospel with our minds. We must pursue the experience of God's glory. And then finally, we must live for God's glory. Christianity is not only about understanding God's truth or experiencing God's love. Christianity is a way of life. It's a way of life. We are called to live for God's glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. I'm going to plug our youth group just for a second. This is what Pastor Josh says to the kids all the time. Whatever they're doing, is he's saying, we're doing this for the glory of God. Whether it's studying scripture, or it's playing games, or it's singing, or it's doing outreach projects, all of that is done for the glory of God. I love that our kids are growing up with this giant idea in their heads that whatever they do, they do for the glory of God. Because this is the right Christian perspective. Now, what does it mean to live for God's glory? It means that God is our main concern. Our main concern is God. We live in a way that reflects who He is, His character, His attributes, and what He has done for us in Christ. Now, that's the aspiration, to live for God's glory. But here's the problem. I am a sinful person. We are sinful people. Yes, justified by Christ's sacrifice. Forgiven, yes. Given a new life by Christ's resurrection, yes. But we are sinful people still. Now let me give you some hope here. 2 Corinthians 3, 16. When one turns to the Lord, 
the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God gave us His Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Not only God became human in Christ, but God is indwelling us by His Holy Spirit. God's revelation of His glory is happening through the Spirit of God who comes to us and is committed to change us. He removes the veil that blocks our communication with God, that blocks our experience of God's glory. And He enables us to see God and experience God through the gospel. And as we do that, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is a progressive work of the Spirit. God changed and became human. Now the Holy Spirit is changing us so we can become more like the Lord Jesus. Did you know that even as we are glorifying God by our lives, we are being glorified through Christ? Did you know that? It's an amazing thought that the glory of God that Jesus said he will share with us in his prayer in John 17. He says, my glory I will give to them. He's sharing his glory with us. Through the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed into the kind of beings that we are supposed to be. And so we are expressing in our Christian lives, we're expressing our essence, obscured by sin. And yet now there's freedom in the Holy Spirit. The Word became flesh. We are becoming holy. Empowered by His Spirit, we live for God's glory, repenting of our sins and growing in holiness, growing in knowledge, growing in obedience, growing in love. Does that describe your life? Are you living for God's glory? Until Jesus returns and we see Him face to face, when all barriers will be removed, we will see Him, we will know Him as He really is, until we become who we are supposed to be, glorified completely in His presence. We pursue a life for His glory, counting on the Spirit to continue to transform us.